Negotiation is an information gathering game. Information dictates how you should construct your strategy, how you should frame your proposal or request, and how you should try to get from an agreement into action. Information gives you the ability to identify who else might be influencing the other side, what factors might be influencing the other side's behavior, and what things, what obstacles might come up along the way that will hinder your ability to influence your counterpart. That is why today, I want to introduce to you the third episode of the Minson Negotiates Podcast Negotiation Course. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the third episode of my podcast negotiation course. I'm your host, Minson Vo. Now, as you have probably already heard, today's topic is going to lean on information. And specifically, it's going to be how to probe for strategical pieces of information during a negotiation to use as levers and persuade your counterpart, to influence your counterpart. That was probably a lot to take in. And just a side note, if I do sound weird during this episode, I have a cough drop in my mouth. I've been coughing for the past two weeks now. It's not COVID, but it seems like a side effect of the cold I had two weeks ago. So hopefully it gets better. But anyway, information. What is it? Which types of information are important? How do you find out this information? How do you get the other side to willingly give you this information? What happens if they misinterpret your intentions and see you as manipulative? What happens if they don't trust you? What happens if they are trying to deceive you and not tell the truth. These are all the things that I'm going to cover in this episode, roughly in that order. I'm going to give you very specific frameworks, tactics, and strategies on how to find out what makes your counterparts tick. What I would always recommend and I especially recommend for this episode is you find a notepad or a pen, or if you like to take notes on your phone, you can use that because the things that you are going to be hearing today can be applied to your next conversation. But often, especially this happens to me after listening to these podcasts, we go out, we do other things. We go on with our daily lives and we forget a lot of the content that we listened to an hour or two hours before. So in order to improve your retention, to improve your ability to recall and apply these tactics in your conversations, not just negotiations, information gathering is applicable in all circumstances, I would recommend, highly recommend actually, taking notes. That being said, let's jump into the first subtopic that I'm going to talk about today. What type of information or what type of information is there and what should you probe for? Now, I like to use a framework or many frameworks when trying to 
see which information I should be gathering from the other side when I'm trying to persuade them. And there are, again, I say frameworks because there are many, but I'm going to show you the simplest one, the one that I teach almost everybody when they are starting negotiation and the easiest one to remember. And the acronym for this framework is very easy. GOATS. Spelled exactly how it sounds. G-O-A-T-S. And I'm going to go through each letter very or fairly quickly because I have to save part of this episode for showing how to probe for the information as well. I'm just going to tell you the importance of each letter and its usability in a real-life negotiation scenario. All right, so G, goals. Goals are what things the other side wants and what are their reasons for wanting those things. And there are surface goals and underlying goals. Surface goals are what they want. Underlying goals are their reasons for wanting what they want. And your job in a negotiation is to really dig into the underlying goals. Negotiation on the surface, is seemingly an inflexible process. If my non-existent sister, because I don't have one, and I are negotiating over a pie, there's only so much we can negotiate for. Either we split the pie in half, or one of us gets more of the pie than the other person, and the other person feels like they've they were treated unfairly. So we both had goals of getting more of the pie than each other, then it would be seemingly inflexible. Now, here's the magic in uncovering underlying goals, especially. Instead of just finding out that both my sister and I want the pie, both me and my sister want the pie, and want more of the pie than the other person, if we ask why each other wants it, we might find out that I want most of the pie because I want to give it to my friend, Josh. She wants most of the pie so she can save it for later, for another day, because she really likes pie. Then the inflexible situation turns into one that's actually solvable and negotiable. So if I find out I want to give a pie to my friend Josh and she finds out that she wants to save pies to eat another day, I could be like, oh, mom's stopping by the store tomorrow as well. She's getting another pie. The thing is, Josh is coming over today, and I'm not going to see him tomorrow. So, if you can give me more of the pie today, then mom, when mom buys the pie tomorrow, a new pie tomorrow, when she goes to the store tomorrow, I can ask her to buy a pie, and I can give the whole thing to you, because I don't need any pie tomorrow, or want any. It's a lot easier to problem solve when you have underlying goals uncovered. Surface goals, 
again, are just what the other person wants, what you want, what the other person wants. And it makes negotiation seem inflexible. But once you start to dig deeper, things start to change. Now, obstacles. Obstacles is the O in GOATS. There are two categories of obstacles that I like to use. And I'll give you the definition first. An obstacle is very specific. It's, it's why the other side would say no to your request. And there are two main categories. The first one is called a non-emotionally dominant obstacle. I know, I know that is a long name. I just call them NEDOs, non-emotionally dominant obstacle. And these obstacles are ones that aren't really tied with emotion. The reasons why they can't do something are more than often tangible. So if a person's, if you try to borrow $500 from your mom, or let's say from your friend, and they say, I can't do that because they don't have any, because I, I, I don't have any money in my account then that's a non-emotionally dominant obstacle. They're not saying no because they hate you or they think you're selfish or they think you're greedy or they don't trust you. It's because they physically do not have money in their account. And actually, in a negotiation, when you find these non-emotionally dominant obstacles, a lot of the times they are constraints that you have to work around. Non-emotionally dominant obstacles are things that are a little harder to solve than what I'm about to talk about next, the next category, which is emotionally dominant obstacles. Emotionally dominant obstacles or EDOs are reasons why the other person will say no that are based and fundamentally rooted in emotion and feeling. The other person doesn't want to do something because they don't trust you. They don't want to do something because they feel like they might be manipulated. They don't want to do something because it embarrasses them, because they think you're selfish, because they think you're greedy, because they feel like it's unfair. Those are fundamentally emotional problems, emotional obstacles that you need to get past. So in a negotiation, if you find out these non-emotionally dominant obstacles, the NEDOs and the EDOs, what you will have is a picture of of what things you need to overcome in order to get the other side to accept your request. Really good example. If I am negotiating for a discount and the cashier says no, and I ask, well, what makes you say no? And the cashier is like, well, it's unfair to other customers. You're not doing anything for this store that's different. You're going and you're buying something. Why should I give you a discount? They might not verbalize that, but they might think that in their head. So if they feel like it's unfair, what I could offer is if you give me a discount, 
I can refer more customers to the store and you will have more opportunities for making more money to make it more fair. And as you can see, by finding out what makes the other side say no and actively trying to solve the obstacles, what I just gave there was an example of an emotionally dominant obstacle, an EDO, but actively trying to solve those obstacles will make you a more persuasive person because you're not just going into a negotiating or a negotiation explaining why they should say yes. Instead, you are giving them less reasons for why they should say no. And that moves me on to the A in GOATS alternatives. Now, I'm going to cover these next three letters fairly quicker because we're running out of time and I could spend 10 episodes on GOATS itself. But for the purposes of keeping this episode in a timely framework, I will not speed through it, but explain just the basics of A, T, and S. So A, alternatives. Alternatives is a piece of information that will show you how much power you have in a negotiation. Now, power is a fairly complex dynamic and topic, but it's usually defined by who has the better alternative in a negotiation. An alternative is defined as what would happen if you and the other party do not get to an agreement. It's what happens if they deny your request. It's what happens if you deny what they're requesting. If you are asking a boss for a raise, it's what would happen if you don't get the raise. What's the backup plan? And I'm actually going to use that example to show you what, how alternatives actually exemplify power. If a boss is approached by you asking for a raise, if your boss is approached by you asking for a raise, and they don't give you a raise, what's their alternative to an agreement? Oh, well, it's the status quo. I don't give them a raise. I save more money. Um, I'm pretty happy with it. I, I, I'm fine with it. Okay, what's your alternative if you don't get to a raise? Or if you don't get a raise? Oh, shoot. I, I'm struggling to pay my bills. And I know I'll struggle. struggle. I, I know I'll struggle even more. If I don't get this raise because interest rates are rising soon. Oh, so it seems like you have the worst alternative in that negotiation. So that means since your boss has the better alternative, they have more power. They have more leverage because you have more to lose if you don't get to an agreement. Again. Power is a fairly complex topic, but in simple terms, if you find out what the other side's alternatives are, if you find out what they have to lose by not accepting your request, you might be able to use that as a means for justifying your proposal and influencing the other side. 
T, third party. A third party is somebody that's not in the negotiation directly, but has an impact on the negotiation. When you are trying to influence somebody to do something for you, a lot of the time there will be somebody else that is influencing that person's decision. If you are asking one parent to let you go out to a concert, there is no doubt that the other parent probably has a stake in that decision as well. And even if you get one parent to say yes, the other one might say no if you do not play your cards correctly. Let's say you are trying to ask a friend to go on vacation with you to Hawaii next summer, and you are talking with them, and they seem to agree with what you're saying, and they say they want to go on a vacation as well. And you're excited. You go on to buy the tickets, and all of a sudden, you get a phone call from them saying, "Hey, I can't go on vacation anymore. My girlfriend or my boyfriend wants to do something with me." There you go. Since you haven't assessed, or asked, or probed about what third parties might be present in a negotiation, you haven't found that out. You are not prepared to deal with the challenges that might come into play. That will probably come into play in the process of turning an agreement into the more important A, which is action. Now, last part of goats S standards criteria. This. Standards are one of the most important tools that I've ever learned, and they are the other side's reference points for making decisions. They are policies. They are precedents. They are moral values. They are things the other side has said. Psychology tells us that it's very hard for a person to go back on their word, on their standards. Unless they're schizophrenic, if they do, it makes them seem like an untrustworthy, inconsistent, and unpredictable person to everybody else, which are not desirable traits that are wired into our brains. So, how can you use standards in a negotiation? Well. First, of course, since this is an information episode, you're gonna find what their standards are, and you can do that through research, through asking them. And I'll give you an example right now on how to find it and how to use it as well. Let's say I am negotiating with the customer service department of my internet service provider, and I feel like I have been treated unfairly because I'm getting charged more for a plan than the Salesperson who was talking to me said they would charge me. So I go to my internet service provider's website and I go to the About Us page and I find a quote about customer satisfaction. Let's say it says, "We put customers first." So I can take that standard. It's a public statement. It's a value that they've. Declared for their company, 
and I can call a customer service representative from the department and I can say, hey, um, I'm reading that you guys put customers first on your website. Is that really true? They're like, uh, um, yeah, I, I, I believe so. Um, why? What's wrong? Well, I'm getting charged $50 more than I, than the sales person said I would be charged. And the other person I called, the other representative I called said they couldn't change it. And I feel uncomfortable. I feel like this is unfair. How does that compare to putting customers first? And I guarantee you that type of approach for persuading, for influencing another person by using their standards is much more persuasive than going in complaining or explaining about why they have treated you wrong. But again, to use standards, to use these standards, you must have to find what they are. And if you can't find them through research, like in that example, you can find them through asking. Good question. What do you believe is fair? And that is it for goats. Okay, so I kind of violated my own standards because I said that I wouldn't take as long and I took pretty long on standards, but that's very, very important. But we're going to move on to the next part, which is how do you actually probe for this information? Now that you have a framework of what are the important pieces of information you need to gather, how do you actually look for it? Luckily, there are a few specific tactics that I'm going to show you. The first two are very simple, but they're not actually simple once you get into the nuances, are what questions and how questions. Notice how I didn't say why questions. Why, the word, makes people defensive. If you ask somebody, why did you say that, it sounds like an accusation. But if we ask with what and how, it takes a little bit of that pressure off. What makes you say that instead of why are you saying that? Now, what questions? You're going to use what questions to reveal, to uncover information about their goals, their obstacles, their alternatives, third parties, their standards, their, their goats. What is fair to you? What do you hope to achieve? What's making you say no? What happens if we don't reach an agreement? And by using these what questions, you make it a little bit more comfortable than if you asked why for the other side to share with you those crucial pieces of information that you can use as levers for persuasion. On the other hand, how questions are used to make the other side think. They are used to stimulate thought. It's to get people to reevaluate what their opinion is on something. And then, after thinking it through, decide 
if they want to keep that opinion. And I know that sounds complex, but I'll give you an example. Let's say the other side tells you that they want, let's say you're selling something now, and the other side tells you that they want to pay you an amount that's completely unacceptable to what you wanted to gain from the negotiation. Instead of insulting their offer, instead of saying no, you can find out the market value of the item you're selling, find that it's much higher, and use a how question to ask, how does that compare to the market price? And get them to really think about how ridiculous that offer is. Remember, what questions are to reveal to uncover the goats? How questions are to activate another person's thinking process so that they can reevaluate their opinions or their claims on certain things? And if you combine those two things together, not only do you have the tools to probe for levers of influence, but you also have the tools for changing, for altering another person's perceptions of how they view your request or proposal and how they view their demands. So you've learned two types of wonderful questions for negotiation to probe for information. I said there was there were a few tactics, so there's obviously one more. And this is this sounds like a counterintuitive to a certain extent negotiation information gathering technique because it doesn't really open it doesn't seem to open an opportunity for the other person to talk. Rather it reflects on what the person has said. And this is called a paraphrase. Very simply, you are repeating back to the other person what they have told you in your own words. And what this will do is a lot of the time, it will get the other person, despite it being pass-oriented, to elaborate on what they have said and give you more information about their goals, their needs, their wants, their standards, third parties, obstacles, etc. So if they tell you in a, if you are negotiating, I have to make up all these scenarios on the spot. If you're negotiating the price of a car, you're the buyer and they tell you that they really want to sell the car because their inventory is full right now and they want to create space for other cars, if you get that information out of them, then you can paraphrase that by saying, so you told me that you want to sell the other cars to create more room in the dealership so that you can have the opportunity to bring more cars in and sell them as well. And the other side is like, yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. And here's the important part. After they say that, you stay silent for a few more seconds. 
and magically it'll seem like you have put a spell on them and they'll start talking again. It happens nine out of 10 times. So you've done your paraphrase. They say, yeah, exactly. And you stay silent. They're like, yeah, you know, um, I, I, I don't know why. Uh, I don't know why it's so hard to sell these cars. I mean, I think it's due to the pandemic. And then they start going on and on and on and on and on. And you found more information that you can use to persuade them. You found out that the pandemic is probably inhibiting their ability to sell cars. And you can use that to justify your lower offer. Oh, since I'm since I'm helping you get this off your hands because you are having trouble meeting a quota and you have more inventory coming along the way coming on the way. I think I deserve a lower price. So those are just or that's just an example of using a paraphrase and some silence at the end of that too to gather more information. Now, I don't know why more inventory would be coming in if there was no demand, but let's just assume for the sake of that situation being logical. Okay, last part of this episode. How do you deal with the challenges that usually come up when you are gathering information? And I'll start with the first challenge that people try to face, and this is when the other side misinterprets your intention. They feel like it's an interrogation. They feel like you're asking them too much. They feel backed into a corner. And you've used your what questions, your how questions, your paraphrases, but their guard is still up because they feel like you're doing that. You're gathering information for an intention that's going to hurt them in the end. A very good way to counter that to prevent that from happening is using what I call intention statements. They start with the word I, and they're very simple. I just want to make sure that I'm understanding you correctly. What, what do you hope to achieve here? Or I I, I want to make sure that I'm not getting the wrong picture. What makes you say no? Hmm. I'm curious. How does that affect things? You can see that those intention statements are basically just me giving a reason for why I'm asking what I'm asking. And notice my tone of voice as well. It sounds very non-confrontational. And by using these intention statements before your questions and paraphrases with the right tone of voice, you can prevent the chances of the other side interpreting your actions as manipulative or harmful. The second challenge that people usually face when trying to gather information is that the other side does not trust them. Now, intention statements already prevent a little bit of distrust from happening since they now know your intentions. But how do you actually gather information and get the other side to trust you as well? You've learned the how questions and the what questions, and you've learned how to paraphrase. A paraphrase is actually a really good way to show the other side 
that you understand their perspective. And that is a tool for building trust. However, I'm going to show you another one right here as well. Make sure you acknowledge their emotions. Acknowledge their emotions. A lot of people say that emotions don't have a place in negotiations. They do. And they have a place in every negotiation because no human decision out there is made without the presence of emotion. So let's say you are still negotiating a car and the other side is giving you a, an offer and they're like, I think this is fair. And they seem pretty firm and determined and serious about it. You can label that emotion using the format. It sounds like blank. And you can say, it sounds like this situation is very frustrating for you. And by doing that, by taking the negotiation from a discussion about terms and contents and problems to one about emotions, you show the other side that not only not only are you there to have a conversation and hopefully get what you want, but you are also there to build a human connection. You are acknowledging their emotions and you can see what they're going through, which in turn will build trust. The deeper the human connection between two parties and one of the deepest levels you can go is bonded by emotion, the more trust there will be. So use what questions, how questions to gather information, paraphrases to gather information and build some trust and prevent distrust, but also label a person's emotions to prevent distrust from happening, but also establish that human connection so you can build trust as well. Last challenge I'm going to mention in the information gathering process is going to be fairly complex again, like a lot of the things that I talk about. Everything I, I tell you here is the surface level. Things get way more complex as you go into the nuances. But it's the last challenge is going to be what if the other person is not giving you accurate information? What if they're not telling the truth? What if they're lying? What do you do? Actually, in my course, that's going to be the topic, the in-depth topic of the last episode. But I'll give you a quick introduction right here. When the other person seems like they are not giving you accurate information, your job is to use tools like what questions, how questions, summaries, or sorry, paraphrases, and ask them to clarify what they have just said. If they say something that doesn't add up, use an intention statement and say, I, I just want to clarify. I'm kind of confused. What, what does that actually mean? And as soon as you start finding pieces of information that do not add up to what they have previously said, that do not add up to the standards they have established, then you can start to speculate that they might not be telling the truth and take that with a grain of salt because it's very hard to tell somebody 
that's lying apart from somebody that's telling the truth, as recent studies have shown. So you can only speculate that they might not be telling the truth. And you can use that information to evaluate if you want to talk with them further or how you should proceed in influencing them, which, again, shall be covered in depth in the last episode of my podcast negotiation course. And that is it for the third episode of my podcast negotiation course, probing for strategical information. There was so much information in the past 30 minutes. I hope you took notes. And I'm so excited to hear what your results are when you go out and apply it to your everyday conversations or your negotiations when you want something from another person. Because I know that there's a lot of tactics out there that I can teach, but I know that the ones I showed you are especially effective. If you want to stay in touch with me, I have paused my website because I am working on a website with my team right now, and I'm going to use that one in the future. I don't want to be running two platforms at the same time, so I'm not available on there, but I am on Instagram and LinkedIn. On Instagram, you can follow me at at Nosnu Negotiates. Nosnu is just my name upside down. It's N-O-S-N-I-W, then the word negotiates. Or on LinkedIn, I'm just Minson Vo. V as in Victor and O. Again, I hope these negotiation tools work for you. I hope you understand the concept of gathering information, what information is important, how to gather information, how to deal with the challenges when gathering information. And that is it. I'm your host, Minson Vo, and I will see you at episode four. Happy negotiating.